my name is Suzanne Silbert. I work at uh, Tampa General Hospital here at, as the director of the esoteric testing research and microbiology laboratory. So the esoteric testing is uh, it's a lab that we do a lot of the, the molecular diagnostics tests. Most of them are uh, for infectious disease, they are molecular infectious disease tests. And we also, in the esoteric lab, we have a department that is the flow cytometry, that it's a completely different area. But what's, when was created years ago, it was like esoteric, right? All the different techniques that it was molecular, as well as um, uh, uh, molecular and uh, flow cytometry. The flow cytometry department is it's more like it's uh, for the it's more for oncology for the oncology department. It's like to diagnose uh, mostly like lymphomas and and uh, leukemia. So uh, what I'm going to talk about, and in addition to the esoteric uh, lab, I also am the director of the microbiology that you guys will see, right, uh, will we'll, we'll ended up there as well, that we do a lot of the traditional tests. And uh, research, we, we also have a lab uh, here at, the, at Tampa General that does a lot of uh, research related to new, especially uh, to new technologies, new assays that are, uh, that we evaluate before we bring to the clinical lab. And so we, we participate in clinical trials and, and other beta studies. So today I'm going to, to talk to you guys more about, <clears throat> we'll go really to the beginning, the, the main, the, the basic characteristics of the bacteria and what we need to know to be able to assist with the diagnosis of some infectious disease. So the topics we are going to talk today is the clinical my, uh, definition of clinical microbiology, bacteria, virus, and fungi classification, phenotypic identification methods, antimicrobial susceptibility tests, and molecular tests. It's quite a long uh, talk, but uh, I want you guys to to be to feel free to to stop me at any time and uh, ask me questions. We can talk about. Don't need to wait and can stop me and we'll continue the conversation. So, a clinical microbiology is a discipline that focuses. Are you? I'm on my back to you guys, right? Are you being able to see? I can move maybe to the other side. Sorry. Then everybody can see, right? That's bad. So uh, the clinical microbiology is a discipline that focuses on the isolation and characterizations of infectious organisms to manage and treat patients. Infections can be caused by bacteria, fungi, virus, and parasites. <coughs> 
To diagnose an infection, a sample must be collected from patient's body side, where the detection of a pathogen is likely to signify a disease. So this is really the basic of a clinical microbiology. And there are three very important phases on the exam, and, uh, and I consider all of them very important, and we have to be very careful with them. The first one is the pre-analytical phase, that is the pre-testing phase, that ensure the quality and the accurate spe specimens are collected and transported to the lab. This is as, as important as it is to do the test, because when you are going to do a test, we need to make sure that we are collecting the correct specimen. Otherwise, we'll not have in the end the correct result. Analytical phase is all the, it's the part that we do inside the lab. It's the testing, it's where we do the testing. So we also need to make sure that we choose appropriate sensitive methodology and timely testing in a cost-effective manner. <clears throat> so there are nowadays there are millions of different tests, and we have to make sure that we choose the right one for that specific test. And the post-analytical phase is the post-testing or reporting phase. We have to provide accurate and timely results in a way that it can be interpreted and used appropriately. And this is very important too, like that's what I insist all the time in the lab, that if we have a result, we need to report. We can't be like, you know, waiting or maybe wait. Ah, when I sit there in the, in the, in the computer, I'm going to report all the results. So we need it's a very important phase. We in behind that test, there is always someone that needs the results, and the treat we can start a faster treatment. So the bacteria, uh, it's a, a bacteria is a prokaryotes, which uh, it has a single chromosome and it's not surrounded by a nuclear membrane. It's divided by simple binary fusion. So the bacteria is usually classified with these three characteristics. The morphology of the, the colonies, the, the bacteria itself, the grain, gram staining, you guys probably already heard about gram positive, gram negative, and the requirement of oxygen. So the morphological classifications we can see here the the most the, the ones uh, it it can be a cocci a bacilli, vibrios or spirochetes, spirochetes, spiro, spiro. Sorry, as you guys already noticed, English is my second language, so sometimes I get confused. But uh, but here we can see the cocci. And the bacilli is the ones that we'll see more in the lab. It's the one is the round and the other it's more elongate, elongate. And then we have the gram stain classification that it's also very common that it's it will be either gram positive or gram negative. The, we can see also in the pictures there the gram negative is like this pink and the gram positive is purple, 
blue kind of. So the, uh, regarding the oxygen requirement, bacteria can be aerobes, don't grow in the absence. Uh oh, there is something wrong here. Streaky. <laughs> Well, no, it's correct. Don't grow uh, uh, the absence. I miss the absence. But anyway, uh, aerobes don't grow in the absence of oxygen, so oxygen is required, while the anaerobes is the opposite way. The strict anaerobes grow only in the absence of oxygen, and facu facultative anaerobes grow both in presence or absence of oxygen. And then we have the carboxylic that require presence of high percentage of carbon dioxide. But uh, so I can guarantee to you guys that when you are in the lab, you, the one that you'll see more is the aerobes. And then we have the virus classification that goes a little further. So the virus classification Use, the most used system is the Baltimore classification, and uh, this scheme groups virus according uh, to how the messenger RNA, that is now it's very popular messenger, we can talk a lot, right, after the vaccine, is produced during the replicat uh, replicative cycle of the virus. So it's pretty much divided if the, if the virus is double, it's a DNA or an RNA virus, it's a single strand or a double strand. And then we have the fungi classification. Fungi are eukaryotic organisms that is different, right, from the bacteria and virus, and are classified according to their structure and method of reproduction. So we have yeast, that it's unicellular form. We have the molds that are multicellular, filamentous or hypoform, and the dimorphic that growing that can grow in mold or yeast form. The fungi has nine divisions. Four of them are in the medical microbiology. That is those that you can see here. The phycomycetes, ascomycetes, basidomycetes, and deuteromycetes. All this, we need to know this basic because we will look at that for bacteria identification. We have nowadays, uh, we use different methods. We use the microscopy, culture, antimicrobial susceptibility testing, and molecular methods. All of them can help us with bacteria identification. All right, guys, uh, microscopy is used in microbiology for two basic purposes. The initial definition of microbes and the preliminary or definitive in identification of microbes. So it's either in the beginning or during the, the test. The microscopic examination of clinical specimen is used to detect bacterial cells, fungal elements, parasites, and clumps of virus virus inclusions in the cells, presenting infected cells. Morphologic properties can be used for the preliminary identification of most bacteria, 
and are used for definitive identification of many fungi and parasites. So there are a few different tests, microscopic tests that we can do. What the most simple one is the direct examination. That uh, it's a simplest method for preparing samples for microscopic e examination. The sample can be suspended in water or saline. Uh, saline is like the wet mount that it's very used for uh, like trichomonas vaginalis and others. Pro you probably guys already heard and you know it's just just mixed with water or saline. <coughs> and can also put some contrasting dye. And then we have the differential stains, that a variety of differential stains are used to stain specific organs or components of cell material. The, ver the most, most common ones in the lab is the gram stain. That will let us know like if it's a gram positive or gram negative. So as we talked briefly before, uh, this test differentiate gram-positive and gram-negative. The gram-positive bacteria retain the cri uh, crystal violet color and stain purple. And the gram-negative bacteria lose uh, crystal violet and stain red. So it's, it's a pretty fast test. I don't know if you guys have already seen that, but uh, for sure you'll see when you come to the, the microbiology lab. And then we have the Zill-Nielsen staining, that it's a differential stain microscopic. This technique is used on microorganisms that are not easily stained by basic stains such as gram staining. So, and examples of them is the mycobacteria, actinomycetes, nocardia, isospora, cryptosporidium, and some fungi. So this one, I don't know if you guys already saw how it is. It's a little more, uh, it, it takes longer to stain and it's a very, it's not as usual. Well, it is very common in a, in a micro lab. You guys will see also when you come to the lab, but, uh, but it takes a, a little more time and efforts. And here are some examples. In the top, the top line, you guys can see the gram positives and gram negatives. I'm sure at this point you guys can identify those, right? In the very left there, we have the, the gram negative, right? No, gram positive, and then gram negatives, and then uh, here on the bottom, we have the, the zeal-nielsen. We see like the zoom using, as you guys can see, it's all blue, the background. And uh, when we see some red things there, we need to stop and, and pay attention because it's when we have a positive zoom using. And then moving from microscopic, we are going to culture. Microbial growth is required most of the time for microorganism identification and, and characterization. So we'll need a colony of most of the organisms, the microorganisms to, to be able to identify that. 
So the main purposes of cultivations are grow and isolate microorganisms present in a clinical specimen, determine the microorganisms that are most likely causing infection, and obtain sufficient growth of clinical relevant microorganisms to allow identification and susceptibility testing. So we'll need the colony for all this. When we have the colony, we'll be able to identify, I'll show you guys how, and, and especially test also, right? We need to, to do the susceptibility testing to, to, uh, to define the treatment. So we have a few different ways to, for culture, and they are, uh, so the culture media can be liquid, that it's a broth media, that the way that we are, we are going to in, uh, see if there is growth or not is with the turbidity or the pH of the media. And then we have the solid, that it's, used, that it's the addition of solidifier agent, which is the agar, that it looks like pretty much like a jello. I don't know if you guys already saw, but probably saw like some agar plates. And then uh, when we have the colonies in the agar plates, growing the agar plates is when we can see the morphological characteristics of the colony. And then we have the semi-solid that we use a lot for anaerobes, that is the thioglycolate that it's a broth that contains small amounts of agar. It's restrict, what happens is that it re restricts the oxygen diffusion and the anaerobes can grow very well. So it's mostly used for anaerobes. The, the cultures also, the culture median can be also, uh, we, can, we have enrichment that contains specific nutrients for the growth of specific organisms. Nutritive it supports the growth of most non-fastidious organisms. So fastidious needs much more than um, like the regular aerobic bacteria. So will will not grow in the in a in a regular media. And then we have the selective that in, inhibits all organisms ex, except those selected. And we have a lot of those uh, like a selective for gram positive or for gram negative and other more specific bacteria. And then we have the differential that the colonies of one species can be differentiated from other bacteria growing on the plate in different colors. That is the chromo agar. So nowadays we have this uh, media that makes a lot of uh, things very easy. Like for example, we have uh, just a simple example. It's like for MRSA, we have a media that uh, if there is MRSA in the culture will be a different color than all the other uh, uh, bacteria that grow. And here is just some examples. And 
this is the chromo agar that I was talking to you guys about that we have different colors. We have like hemolysis, some some uh, like blood agar that you can see like the hemolysis of the bacteria that helps with identification too. We have the selective like a uh, Macomb agar that it's only for grand negative. On the top we have the the broad. And once we have our colonies, we'll use also we'll, one of the first things that we look at is the morphology of the colonies. Because uh, the, the morphology will also help us with identification. So we'll see like the size, if it's a small, medium or large, the pigmentation, there's some bacteria like a serratia, for example, you can always see that there is a serration because it's very red. So, you know, you can. And uh, the shape, the surface appearance, uh, if it change, changes in the agar, like I show you guys before, like the hemolysis, like a beta hemolytic streptococcus has a big hemolysis on the blood agar, all this can, can give you, can assist with the identification. The odor, like Pseudomonas aeruginosa, is something that you can identify. Like, I'm, I'm from that time, I'm time when I tell this, like when I was a microbiology, when I work in the bench, like it was a moment that we still used to smell the bacteria. Now we can't do this, right? I, I'm telling you guys, we cannot do this. <laughs> but I used to, and uh, it was very easy to identify and so the monocerogenosa because of the odor. Also some bacteria are uh, mucoid or not. And here also some examples of what I was talking to you guys about that we can see that the colonies differentiate from each other. This is the same, exactly same media, culture media, it's a blood agar, and you can see, we can totally see that they are different species because of the aspect of the colonies. Ones are small, ones are bigger, one are mucoid, others not, other creates uh, hemolysis, others not. So the identification of a bacteria, it's really like putting a puzzle together with some clues because we already know if it's a gram negative, a gram positive, it's mucoid, it has hemolysis or not. But we also need to look other things. What is the site of infection? This is very important. We know that uh, there are some, uh, some organisms that cause infection in some sites and others that don't like there are some sites that are completely sterile so everything that grows it's important and others that are not like it's completely different i always say like very close to each other right but it's completely different to uh urine culture and a stool culture right because one you are expecting not to grow anything, and the other, we are expecting to grow everything. So uh, we really need to know the site of infection that, and what is important in that area. 
what are clinically significant pathogens that they, this decide. Do we have a gram stain compared growth on different medias? Do we have any background information? Like, is this a patient like it's immunosuppressed or not? You know, there are a lot of things that will help with the identification. But we cannot only base on that. We have to test that. We have to see other characteristics. We have to see the phenotypic methods that we can identify. Physical characteristics include microscopic morphologic and staining characteristics and the colonial morphologic characteristics. The metabolic characteristics include environment requirements for growth and nutritional requirements and metabolic capabilities. So, <coughs> sorry, just try. Uh, here are some examples of metabolic characteristics. So this, for example, is a citrate utilization test. The media starts like this green. And if after incubation, after 24 hours incubation, it's still green, it's because it's negative. It doesn't utilize, that bacteria doesn't utilize the citrate. If it turns blue, it's a positive. Same thing here for the oxidation fermentation test. You see that what is a known utilizer is keeps green, the other one is the ferment, it's a fermentative. Here are the examples are uh, catalyzed, like differentiate staphylococci from streptococcus, listeria, listeria versus strep, oxidase, urease, indole. All these we use for that, for, uh, to help us identify the bacteria. But I have to tell you this, that I am a microbiologist that knows this part here. Because, and the reason that I'm telling you is because I started my career as a microbiologist tech. And uh, at that time, it was a big hospital in the south of Brazil, and we had seven tests like this, seven different tests, biochemical tests. And so each bacteria will like inoculate in, in one of the, in this seven batch, like seven tests, will incubate, and then we will, and then the next day, <coughs> The next day, we will compare. We'll see. Ah, it's citrate positive, negative, and then we had a table that will help us to identify. The reason that I'm telling you guys is because nowadays we don't use that anymore, like in a clinical lab. At least here in a big clinical lab, there are other methods that can help us. At Tampa General, for example, we use the. Uh, <coughs> <coughs> Vitec automation system. And just uh, the reason that I to told you guys how I learned this in the beginning 
was because the automation, like you can see here, you have the instrument and you have this card where you, you inoculate the bacteria in this card. And this card has 32 tests, biochemical tests to identify the bacteria. So imagine, like I used to do like with seven, nowadays we have 32. What happened? I'll tell you what happened because I was in this lab that I used to work as a microbiology tech. We received like the second biotech automation system in Brazil. So we started, we were one of the first one, the very first words to implement. It was something super new like automation in microbiology. And what happened is that we started to identify organisms that we had never heard about. Because of course it opens, you know, it really opens the alternatives. Like when you, you have seven, there is a limit of things that you can identify, right? And when you have 32, like the options open, you can start identifying much more things. Like, so it was like a big thing, like the doctors calling the lab, like what organism is this? And we were all like trying to, to, to look for, like to try to understand. So it opens a lot. It was a big, big uh, improvement to a lab, like a, to a microbiology lab when we <coughs> the automation started. But the, what, I, what I can really tell you guys is that automation is one method. I thought that it was the biggest thing, like the best, the most important improvement that had happened in the microbiology lab until Malditoff arrived. Have you guys heard about Malditoff? So Malditoff stands for Matrix Assisted Laser Distortion Ionization Time of Flight, Malditoff. And Malditoff is also used, it's a technique that is used for identification of microorganisms. What happened is that it generates specific mass spectral fingerprints, which can be seen as unique signatures of microorganisms. And identify micro and the technique identify microorganisms to the genus, genus and species levels. When compared with convention methods, Malditoff confers a substantially gain of both working time and turnaround time. So it's much faster than a tradition. The automation is very, it's much faster. It is faster, it's not much faster, but it's faster than the manual. But the Malditoff, we have results in minutes while the automation, you still need to wait for the incubation time. So the MALDI-TOF is a two-phase procedure, <clears throat> the MALDI and the TOF. It's really like that. So the first part is the ionization phase, that initially the samples are fixed in a crystalline matrix on a target plate and are bombarded by a laser. So we mix the, the bacteria in with a matrix, put in this plate that it's from the mouth off, and once we put in the instrument, the 
the bacterium received the laser. What happened then, the sample molecules vaporized into the vacuum while being ionized at the same time. High voltage is then applied to accelerate the charged particles. And then we have the, the second part of the multi-TOF, that is the TOF, the time of flight phase. The, this is when the particles will impinge upon the linear detector with a few nanoseconds after ionization. Higher mass molecules will arrive later than, than the lighter ones. So it's really like the time of flight. It's who arrives first, who arrives after that, right? The, the ones the flight time measurement makes it possible to determine molecule masses directly. Each peak in the spectrum <coughs> corresponds to the specific mass of the particle along the time axis, starting with the ionization moment. You guys don't need to know this like I'm like I'm telling, but I'm just trying to explain what really happens that because it's so fast that uh, we don't know. But basically this is like the the instrument. We have all start with a colony of bacteria. We need to culture the bacteria. It's an unknown microorganism we mix with the multi matrix and put in the plate. We put the plate in the system, and then we'll have the fingerprint of each bacteria that it's that it's done by the flight, right? Who who comes first? Who comes last? The time of flight, and then the system has a library that has millions of fingerprints, and then that unknown bacteria will be compared to this library and will receive the result. The, all these, the entire process take minutes instead of hours or days. So this is really like the biggest improvement that we have in a clinical microbiology lab because we can nowadays when we have a culture, when we have a colony, we can identify the bacteria in minutes. We don't need to wait another day. All right. Question. Is your molding set up for uh, microbacteria as well? Is it validated for it? We validate it in house. Okay, so yes. Yes. They have to finalize, right? They have a multi They just they have to validate it, go through all the federal crap, and so that takes like forever. And so at UF, they've had it since like 2016. And they were actually, uh, they had MICOs um, validated in like 2018. So we were identifying stuff before it went to National Jewish like that. And so it was really important because then you start to make, you know, antimicrobial decisions um, much faster, at least with the hypothesis of what you know, you know, like for two of them, you don't, you have resistance to macrolides, et cetera. And so it's really important when you're dealing with this and having a multi top that not only is validated, but it's validated to the stuff that you see locally, not just the usual suspect. 
Yeah, I'll tell you uh, because uh, what happened is that uh, <laughs> it's uh, what happened is that when you buy the system, the library that comes doesn't come with the mycobacteria. So it's really you need to validate in house. We 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 did the whole validation in house. It's a a lot of extra work, but we did because of the the importance. And it's a very good point because. Mycobacteria is already a very um, slow bacteria, slow grow bacteria. So it takes a long time to grow and then another long time to identify, to be able to speed up this, uh, this process is very important. Do you, do you only use that like if needed, that Malditoff? No, 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 no. It's the routine. It's a. It's the routine nowadays. That's how we identify, if not all, almost all of the bacteria. So has it replaced Vitex then, basically, or do you still use the Vitex? Well, we use the Vitex, but much more for susceptibility tests. Okay. And also for some, uh, Probably something that, uh, you know, like some results that we can't uh, obtain on, on the Maldi, but uh, but the Maldi, the Maldi took over, believe me. It's like the instrument, if you, if you come to the, to the clinical and you will, like to the micro lab and you ask the medical technologists what they think about the Maldi, they will all open a big smile because <laughs> it was the big big improvement i just wanted to know if there are any limitations of like you know did you find any anything which can like you know limit you for not doing this because you said that we have the body it's not validated okay so the viruses right, yeah. the viruses. Uh, for virus well, uh, it, the the main thing is that it starts from a colony. Yeah. So if you don't have the colony, you you can't do it. It's not a fishing expedition. You have to have. It's like with PCR. Right. You have to have. Uh, you know something growing. Yeah. yeah. You can't just. You know this isn't. You know Disney. Bibbidi bobbidi. Okay. Got it. It doesn't work that way. You got to have to grow. That's why I asked about the micro because. Know, because, you know, because of how frequent or infrequent microbes we produce, you don't know when that could happen. You might think, oh, well, I should have a result now. But no, that's not how it works. Unless you get the microbe assay, you still need a culture. So it's still the same. Yeah, no, it is. That's why I, it's here, right? Everything starts with a colony. Yeah. It's not from the specimen, it's from the colony. As far as getting kind of the validation for mycobacteria, for instance, seems to be the hardest one as well as some, uh, some fungi. What is it that's the limitation for getting that validated at a specific location? Because I'd imagine that in order for this for this identification, it's it's simply a, a, a fingerprint of protein. So why is it why is there a delay in getting so the it's a it's an extra work like any other validation and you need to have like a, a, a like the library because remember like it's not that it it doesn't it's not magic like when you have the fingerprint 
gets the system compares to a library. So if uh, that's the main thing, if you don't have that, you have to create a library in your system. And then you, you need to test the library to see, you know, the, repro the reproducibility, the sensitivity and, and everything else. when you buy the system it comes with a library okay so then you do then uh, then you do a validation like an in-house validation you get like 10 equali and you throw in the instrument you know and then you see like I identify correctly good and then you do but it's much smaller of it's not even a validation it's a verification right and then, uh, but like when you don't have the library, you have to start scratch. from scratch. Dr. Silva, one more question. And I realize you may be going to talk about this, but how is the multi-talk enhanced or complemented by the multiplex PCR panels? Like Phil Moray, for example. So maybe you don't have that system at TGH. I do. Uh, we are going to talk. <laughs> we have everything at TGH. <laughs> We like to play with different toys. That's the, the point. But uh, yeah, no, do you want me to answer now or should we wait when we get to the, Okay. And Dr. Silver, um, there is a question in the chat um, that they want to know, is there ever concern for cross-contamination while being in the ionization phase and vaporizing the vacuum? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, Yeah, the that's a, that's a good that's a good point. Like a uh, culture that you're putting in. So if you're cooling off a plate, you should have one speciation in there. Run it, and then you'd wash out whatever you're doing for ionization. Move on to the sample. So, yeah, that's why. But it that, has to be done yeah, in in a sort of sterile environment. You sure, sure, sure. Right, it's probably done in the safety cabinet. Oh yeah. I would think instead of doing this on the bench or at the counter of McDonald's. But, uh, I, but I really should. <laughs> <laughs> I really should. I like that. That's a good idea. So uh, what, ha what happened here is that, uh, remember, the fingerprint is very specific and very sensitive. So uh, the, the, it's not just the ideal, the, the must part here is that you have to start from an isolate culture, right? You have to get one colony uh, to do that. And uh, so you expect to be like not a mixed culture, right? Uh, or at least a mixed colony. But I have to tell you guys that the microbiology world, it's very interesting. And uh, we don't know, sometimes we don't know if that colony doesn't have like 
a colony below, you know, it's like you think it is an isolate. What you can see is an isolate colony, but might not be. So in microbio in the microbiology world and as well as the the molecular, we need to be very, very careful because we want to make sure that what we are, the bacteria, the virus, the fungus that we are working is the one that needs to be worked. It's not a contamination from anywhere. So the sterile uh, uh, environment is uh, it's a number one thing. Uh, the second thing is that uh, the the Malditoff is very it's a very sensitive test. So uh, and and sometimes like if it's a mixed culture or any other problem, will and if they cannot identify the specific fingerprint, it comes the results as invalid. So then you have to review why it was invalid. You can retest on the Malditoff. You can then you have like other options like the Vitek, you know, but uh, but these things can happen unfortunately. All right, so move moving to AST. The methods that directly measure the activity are of one or more agents is broth dilutions, disk diffusion, and automated system. So here is where we are going to test the antimicrobials part that ident already identified organism. The methods that detect the presence of a specific resistant mechanism. Uh, so, there are the methods that directly measure the activity of one or more agents, like we said here, broad disk and automation. This will let us know like sensitive, uh, resistant, intermediate, and sometimes even like with broth dilution, we'll be able to to test like the the concentrations of a specific drug, like and gives you the minimal in inhibitory concentration that will kill that organism. And there are methods that detect the presence of a specific resistant mechanism, like for example, beta lactamases. MACA. MACA is a gene in the step in the in the step aureus that induce resistance to meticillin. So we can do this as well, as well as uh, beta-lactamases, carbapenemases. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. So there are different methods nowadays that one we can give like a more sensitive resistant. Uh, result and others that we can say like the presence or not of a gene <clears throat> that induce resistance. So the broad dilution, the agent is testing using a range of concentrations. Typically the range of concentration is a series of doubling dilutions. Like uh, you have here like several concentrations of the same antimicrobial. The lowest antimicrobial concentration that completely inhibits visible bacteria growth is recorded as the MIC, minimal inhibitory concentration. So here you see it's like an, you're done in a plate or in tubes, like each one. We, we are talking about exactly the same 
antimicrobial, but in different concentrations. So you see here the, the, the pink and the green, and we'll see how many of them, all, all of them are inoculated with the same bacteria, and the ones that grow, we know that that concentration we cannot use. We'll be able to use the one that here, that really the bacteria was not able to grow. And then the most common is the disc diffusion. This is uh, the Kirby Bauer. Bacteria are placed on an agar plate and discs of antibiotics are added. So we have different antibiotics uh, and they are impregnated with the same amount. We don't have different concentrations of the antibiotic. This is one. After overnight grow, uh, incubated at 35 degrees Celsius, areas of clear media surrounding the disc indicate that antibiotic inhibits bacteria growth. So you see here that the bacteria didn't grow where it's clear. The concentration of <clears throat> antibiotic that diffuses into the media decreases with increasing distance from the source. And the zone diameter is reported in millimeters. So what we do is like we measure this part here, the diameter that is not where we don't have a grow. Uh, <clears throat> and results are reported at sensitive, resistant, or inter intermediate according to lab standards, the CLSI. Every year, uh, review and update the standards of the antimicrobials, anti like what is sensitive, what is, uh, which measure it's sensitive and which measure is resistant. I just had a quick question. You said there's no concentrations for those. It's just determining sensitive or not. Yes. yes. It has a standard concentration according to CLSI. So it's really like it's not uh, the lab who we buy this in a ready standard concentration. And a mix of both, like the the different concentrations and the Kirby Bauer, we have the ETS which use a predefined gradient of antibiotic concentration to determine the minimal inhibitory concentration of antimicro antimicrobial agent. So you see here, it's a, it's a, the ETS is like this strip that has different concentrations of the antibiotics, of the, of the same antibiotics. When applied, we do the same process as we do with the Kirby Bauer. We, we get a plate, we inoculate the bacteria, and we put the strip instead of the disc of antibiotics. So when applied on an inoculated agar plate, there is an immediate release of the drug and the establishment of an antimicrobial concentration gradient is an agar medium. The intersection of the lower part of the ellipse-shaped grow inhibition area with the test strip indicates the peak, the minimum concentration. So you guys can see here on 0.25, 
the bacteria still grow. You see? So will the meat will be the zero thirty-eight? Will be like the the first one above where where you don't see any growth. And then Vitek also brought the susceptibility test in a more in an automated way. So it's the same principle of the identification, but this card in this card is the AST. So instead of having the biochemical test, it has like a different antimicrobials. And uh, and sometimes, and since it is a card that has a lot of different wells, we have also like different concentrations of the same antimicrobial in the card. So the card, yeah, there are several different cards. There are cards that are for gram positive, for gram negative, that include the X and you know, like different antimicrobials that you choose the ones that you want to use in your lab and for specific uh, cultures and uh, some of them has like 20 different antimicrobial with three different concentrations each or and so 20, 20 with three no because we don't have six, 60 spots but sometimes a combination of two cards will uh, offer you this there are different ways that we can get these cards okay Quickly to the end of the test. We'll leave a little bit the traditional world of the microbiology and we'll come to the molecular techniques. Then uh, we still have a little time to go. Okay. So the molecular techniques, I always tell that it's the molecular techniques, usually we don't smell, we don't see the shape. We, we need to imagine, okay? We don't have any more like uh, that, uh, that uh, sensitive uh, that, we, that we do in the traditional micro that we work with a coach. We do like, we do some uh, molecular techniques uh, in, in isolate colonies, but we also do directly from the specimen and we have to imagine that there is an organism, there is a DNA, RNA, and we will be seeing that here. So polymerized chain reaction, you guys probably already heard PCR, is the most common target amplification molecular method used in the clinical lab. A specific region of the genome is targeted by primers and the target sequence is replicated. Levels of the target sequence are increased to a point where they are readily detectable in a variety of tests. So we start with a template DNA. And after. Like a few hours, like 35 cycles, like two, three hours, we can have like 34 billion copies of the same target. And this will help us to identify this target in the lab. So in the beginning, the PCR, we used to do like manual extraction, amplification in a different uh, 
in a different instrument and the detection also in a different instrument. It was very, uh, it was fast, but not as fast as it is today. So like the, the manual extraction could take like three, four hours and then another two, three hours for Amplify and then another couple of hours on the detect, one hour probably on the detection. So we'll take like one, one long day or two days to have a result. And here is an example, for example, a PCR of a herpes simplex virus. One and two, that's how we used to do. We, what we see in the detection part is what this white part here that we call band, right? So we have like the columns one to 12. And then we have one and two are positive controls because we always need in the PCR to work with positive and negative controls because we don't see what we see is this and it's a very sensitive uh, technique so we need to make sure that it's not it's working well so the positive is when we see the bands and the negative where we don't see the bands and then all the other ones are clinical samples that when you see the band is because it's positive when you don't see it's negative <laughs> Anyway, this is fast, and we don't use this in a clinical lab, in our clinical lab. Improving, the first improvement in the molecular diagnostic was the detection part, right? We don't, like, we stopped doing the detection part with, in using electrophoresis because the real time came. And then uh, what the real-time PCR uh, does is we identify at the same time in the computer already. It's uh, with, uh, with probes that emit light, fluorescence, when the target is there. And then another improvement was the, uh, the automation of the extraction, that it was a very labored and manual step that nowadays we can do with automation. We have automated extractor. But it continue improving. So in the beginning we had DNA extraction, amplification and detection in three different instruments. Nowadays we can do all of them in one instrument. So there are several different uh, molecular platforms nowadays that incorporates an extraction, amplification, and detection. We also call that sample in, results out. You put the sample, and after a few hours, you get the results. So as I mentioned, there are numerous instruments, but how we are going to evaluate the best options? First, when they ask me, like, how do you, decide what do you bring. The first part is the specificity and sensitivity of the test, right? The throughput, like sometimes you need like a test that you run like, I don't know, like two samples a day. And then nowadays became very easy to teach this class because then 
you bring COVID, right? That you have 1,200 tests a day. So you can't, you can't use a small platform. You can't use a small instrument for these occasions because you have a lot of samples to test. The turnaround time also, it's important, right? It's a fast test, so we want, we want to be able to do fast. Cost, you know, cost, this molecular test can be super expensive. And ran, random access and batch, there are some instruments that you can test as the sample comes to the lab and others that you have to batch. So you have also to consider this. Do you want to wait? Do you have enough samples to get an instrument that you need to batch? You know, like you have like uh, one, two samples a day. Do you want an instrument that you, you need to batch? Then this fast test will be, will take much longer. And that's the example, for example, uh, and here, just to exemplify what happened with SARS-CoV-2 test, we have the gene expert that the turnaround time is perfect. It's one hour, low, but it's a low capacity. We can test like up to 16 at a time, and it's a very high cost. And then we brought the new Modex, and it's pretty good, the turnaround time, one hour and a half, comparing to one hour, it's pretty good. It's a medium capacity. We can run about like 96 samples in eight hours and the cost is low. And then this was really what saved us with COVID because it takes a little longer. It's two hours and 30 minutes, but it's a high capacity. And the cost is high also, but not as high as GeneX. But I would say that the cost is medium because it's in between the new Modex and the GeneX. But we could run like 800 samples a day there. So we needed that because we wouldn't be able to, to test 1,200 samples in the GeneX. But you said the cost is high. What, what sort of a reference? I can tell you. This costs $25 a pass. This costs $38 a pass. And this costs 76 cents. And then we'll get in another world. So think about the traditional test, right? We have one sample, and then you go there and you say, like, oh my God, this patient is a has a GI problems. So you have to order like several different exams, right? Like a culture and then you have like, I don't know, like a parasite and other different tests. Multiple tests ordered. Results take hours or days depending on the test. Each one comes in a separate reporter. So the longer patient length of stay. And then we have the syndromic testing. That's what I'm going to talk about. So it's a new approach. One sample, you order a panel, like a syndromic panel, takes about an hour, little more, hour in the instrument, right? Multiple results come in one report and improves the patient management. 
the theory is wonderful, it saves lives. Results, the software creates a detected or not detected call for each organism and provides a simple and easy to read report. So those are the reports. We have like a respiratory panel with 20 targets. And then we have, what is the other one? The PCAD also, the, that is the blood culture. Then we have the GI, and we have the meningitis. That is, this one, I really, really think it's, it was a big, big improvement to a lab because it, it does save lives, right? If you are able to identify a meningitis, if you, like in, a, in an hour. But this is a very high cost and low capacity. So we really need to, to see who should be using this. And the reason that I, I know it's very controversial, but the, the, the reason I'm telling you guys, because we have, for example, a mini panel, in a mini respiratory panel in the lab, a molecular test that tests for COVID, flu A, flu B, and RSV. Most of the patients that will come with a respiratory symptoms, we could we could use that, right? Some not. And then we have a respiratory panel that offer you twenty different twenty different targets. What's the cost difference between the two or? So this is a test that usually costs like 129, the panel, the respiratory, the meningitis is higher, the BCIT also. But, uh, so do we need to test all of the patients with this test? Or could you try the mini, the fourplex? How much is the fourplex cost? The yeah. fourplex cost uh, about 40. It's that, that, this one here, we have a fourplex that I think it's, uh, it's 40 or 42. How much is like the GI panel cost? That's a good question. I don't know, but it's a little around the 100. Okay. Uh, but so when I'm, when I'm bringing this to you guys, it's like a, I was at Tampa Janitor when we implemented the first panel. That it was the respiratory panel. And the reason that we implemented this, because as you guys know, Tampa Janitor is a big transplant center and has a big like lung transplant center. So, oh my God, of course you're going to do a test that, right? Like for a if you need like for a lung transplant center if a, like if a patient goes i i would imagine i don't i'm not a physician but you know i, I would imagine i can totally see but you don't need to use that in every single patient that comes to the ed for a you know for a respiratory symptoms that that's that's the point i'm not the one who is going to decide as i'm, I'm Pretty clear, I'm not a physician, but I'm just trying to bring to you guys 
that I think we need to be like, we need to see the options. And I don't think this should be the first option for everybody. In the outpatient setting, this definitely makes sense, right? If you have the four, four panel, that's fine. Or even for employees, for employee health, right? Yeah. Um, you could make the argument in, in, the, in a coordinary center like TGH that the biofire might help you for infection control purposes, mm -hmm. where you should, I like that word, um, like Kennedy says, should, um, be using droplet precautions with enhanced eye precautions for patients who have upper respiratory infections. Should. Not everybody does. And so it depends on how good your infection control is. Mm -hmm. But that would be the only reason that would argue for doing a little bit more than you would for infection control purposes, especially on keeping a compromised board. Mm -hmm. That's I completely agree. Oncology center that they want to build here or whatever. All that stuff is important because then you have to have you know, infection control plays a huge role here. Mm -hmm. if not, then you're going to do with the test anyway. Mm -hmm. Once you start to have a cluster of cases. Yeah. Um, if it's all about the cheddar, then yeah, sure. Yeah. No, and also like uh, there are many scenarios that we can talk about. Like for example, in the flu season, do you really need to to get like all the the patients that come from uh, in the ED and go the panel? Send the people home. That's why that new place on on Kennedy Boulevard will help. Yeah. So uh, you can totally do a mini. Also, also because we don't, you know, like it's important, like a, like I said, like the the mini respiratory panel that we have there, we have an instrument that we can test 800 while the biofire is one at a time. We have a 16 tower, like so it's 16 at a time, but but I think we have to look at that and to make a, to make a, like decisions, you know, to. You don't think that you don't need the full menu. Like there are a lot of variables that you need to be that you put in the table, and and cost is one day out of that, the throughput and and so on. All right. Um, in the end, now this is the esoteric testing microbiology lab molecular diagnostics that we offer at TGH. It's a big variety, like uh, probably forgot a few. I keep like trying to update every every year because we add things and take things others. Like some of the, the, the bold ones are the, the panels that has more than uh, one. And um, we, we do a lot of, um, uh, nowadays, we do a lot of commercial tests, like that we buy the assays, but we still have the the validate the ones that we validated in house. Like for example, a rapid growth microbacteria, microbacteria, tuberculosis, and atrium complex are tests that we validated in house, and so and other ones, the KPC, ban A, and so on. So um, the the esoteric testing. Um, it was, I think it's worth saying, like it was like a, an idea of uh, Dr. Wyden, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But, um, but he, had, when he started to do molecular testing, <laughs> right, so, now, yeah. so uh, when he started the, 
the lab at Tampa General was very esoteric, like very different. Like people didn't uh, didn't know uh, and uh, much, and we didn't have the option to buy a test commercial. So he validated most of the tests we had in the lab like to help the transplant, like identify CMV fast and and um, and so on, several. Nowadays, we there are a lot of commercial tests. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, once I, I took over, I, I worked for, was very lucky to work nine years with him and he was my mentor, so I remember the meetings we, we used to go together. And um, and I kind of keep this like, uh, of course, like for many reasons to bring a commercial test is much easier for regulations and uh, for quality control and many other uh, reasons. But uh, but we have but I keep that. That he taught me like this is not our limitation if the hospital needs if this will be, will improve patient care, we will bring the test in house. So you guys are more than welcome to come to the lab. I'll be happy to show everything that we do that. And uh, I'm open for questions. If you guys have any questions. I guess what I was uh, referring to earlier was, let's say with the biofire blood culture identification panel that many hospitals use versus the multi-top, how does, the biofire panel complement the rapid identification of pathogens with the multi That's uh, an excellent question. So uh, what happened is that uh, the MAUDI, we don't do the identification directly from the, the blood culture. It's a, it's a different culture, right? It's a liquid culture. So when it turns turbity, we know it's positive. The, the instrument let us know that it's, it's positive. But we still, like if we put in the mouth, it will have to culture that, that liquid medium in a solid one that we can isolate the colony and put in mouth on the mouth. So we are talking another 24 hours. The BCID panel, no, the BCID panel, we get, it's what we call like fast identification, right? Fast blood culture identification because we'll get that liquid. We'll do a gram stain to make sure that there is like it's a gram positive, gram negative, and then we'll do the biofire panel that it's another hour. So you save like 24 hours in a patient that might be septic, right? That it's so you save lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and drug. So, uh, so we do use the BCID. For blood culture, we use two different fast approach, like for identification. One is the accelerate, that we do the gram positives, that it's also a fast that, we go, that goes from uh, the blood, the, the liquid blood culture, when it turns positive, we put in the accelerate, that it's pretty much like takes I think two hours for identification and another seven hours, five to seven hours for susceptibility testing. So really like in in nine hours you have a result. Yeah. 
but then you have a full result like uh, in two hours you have the the identification in another five or seven hours you have the susceptibility test like sensitive or resistant right the biofire we use for gram positives and will give you the identification but will not give you the box with SRI, like the sensitive or resistant, will give you some genes like VNA, MACA, that induce resistance, but you still have to wait a little more for the susceptibility testing. Going back to like your molecular diagnostics, uh, did you say that you guys have like one machine for like the automated extraction and the real-time PCR and the verification is on one machine or like they're separate machines? Well, uh, the market offers you like uh, the real-time PCR, right? That it's, uh, you can do an, uh, what we have at Tampa General, we have some tests we do like uh, in these machines that it simply results out. It does the, the instrument incorporates extraction, amplification and detection. And we also use real-time PCR and automated extraction for some other tests. Like, uh, let me think about the test. <clears throat> BK virus that we do a lot for the transplant patients. We don't have any tests. Um, got me because I, I want to bring something more automated, but there isn't. So what we do is we do extraction on the automated extractor, and then we prepare the master mix, everything, and we do like in a real-time PCR. So it's a little longer and more labor intensive. And, I, and believe me, I'm not, a, when I think about automation, this is a very good point. Like when I talk about the sample in results out, it's not only because of labor intensive, but it's also because of contamination. You know, like a molecular test, we need to be very, very careful because remember what I said in the beginning, like we don't see Right, we don't see the DNA like coming around in the air, but there are. So we, we need to be very careful. So if you can do everything in the same instrument, the chances of contamination reduce a lot. Thank you. Yes, yeah, sure. I actually have a comment here and question for the fellow. So most important thing for you to talk when you talk to the microbiologist is when you have this syndromic diagnosis, and we'll talk about this the next next talk, is what organisms are they at risk for? So when you have an organism that you're thinking in your mind, this is what it is, which organisms do you need to call the lab, say, hey, look out for this so the techs don't get an infection? So I want you all to, to, see, to, to give our um, in the organisms which you think are pertinent Prudent to call the lab. What are they? Coccidioides. Coccidioides. What now? Hemorrhagic viruses. What else? Hemorrhagic viruses. Well, that's Bad news and protein. What? She said one. Brucella. Brucella. What else? Yes. What else? So, what is that? Brucella. What else? 
bacillus aggressus. Yes. So those, and also there's one more. TB. That's silly. <laughs> TB is really, you really, it, it, technically, yeah, BSL3, but it takes a lot of load and a lot of time exposure mm -hmm. to really get sick with TB. Yeah. What organism can you get sick like that from and die from from being next to somebody if you're intubating a patient or having close contact? Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that you need to call them and say, hey, we're thinking about this. I care about your next. Please be careful. Use precaution. And I, I've seen many times brucella contamination of cultures where people get infected in the lab, coccidioides when I was in San Diego, caused mm -hmm. because again, and here we won't think about it. You got to wrap the plate and tape. You got to think about these things and they need to know that. So it's an infection control thing, possible epidemiology. Everything is connected. Just because you're, you know, sitting there and typing an epic or in CPRS or whatever you're doing, think about them because even though it's in your mind, they're not going to read your note necessarily. They're busy validating instruments, there's tubes everywhere. <laughs> so call them and tell them if you're thinking about one of those pathogens. That's my thought. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because people get sick. I, I've oh, seen, yeah, absolutely. We had a cluster of at the vet school at UF where um, the surgeons did not call the, the micro lab there. And what had happened was is they, were, they, they had a, a, a hunting dog that was infected in the spine. They were doing surgery and they thought, oh, you know, who knows what it is, maybe it's cancer or something, whatever. And they aerosolized this in, in the OR, because they did. And then they didn't tell us that. Well, of course, Brucella suis grew. And everybody was on prophylaxis for weeks. Oh, wow. Everybody. And so I was one of the hospital epidemiologists covering all of UF Health. We had to do that. So it's kind of important to call you guys to say, hey, we're thinking about this. Be careful. That's what we're doing. It's a very, very good point. Very good point. Appreciate that. Yes. All right, guys. Any more questions? So to finalize uh, the comments um, in the chat, uh, Dr. Tony sent some good schematics and, the, and uh, a nice play on words there on PCR. Um, so check it out for extended learning. And then um, Melissa Albert asked, do you have a good resource to refer to regarding test exceptions? And I don't know if she can clarify. Um. Hi, everyone. Um, I guess I was just referring to, like we were talking about the Malditoff that um, for liquid samples, um, you know, like the biofire would have been better for blood cultures just because we need the isolate or the colony. So just like something that we can refer to regarding um, certain exceptions to different tests, if that makes sense. You mean like other examples or? Uh... Yeah, like other examples or just um, like a resource in terms of like understanding these different tests uh, from a microbiology standpoint. Mm -hmm. If 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 you know of you know if you have like a resource that you may refer to that would be helpful for us. I don't know. Uh... Uh, I don't know, maybe some uh, microbiology manuals, like uh, in the lab we use a lot, the, but I don't think uh, maybe the, the manual of 
clinical microbiology, which, uh, which is really our Bible. <laughs> like, gotcha. Yeah, but, uh, because uh, the, the thing here is that such a big variety, right, of tests and organisms. So I'll think about, but uh, I don't really know. Like, I think this is something that we really try to, every time we evaluate new techniques, we try to, to see, right? Uh, so. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful presentation, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I think Lauren had a question. Dr. Okay. Wayne. Sorry. I, this, okay, I'm probably going to ask this in a silly sounding way, but like, so no, from like a ba basic <laughs> standpoint, um, like with beta-lactamases, right? So you can like get like the general gist of it from like looking at the susceptibility results on like whether it's like ESBL or it has AMC mm -hmm. but like are there I, I know for like certain ones like the carbapenemases and like the MBLs and stuff like is that like a reflex thing and then do you guys use like PCR and like maybe some of the other ESBLs or is it really just not necessary? That's an excellent question not silly at all but um, we we do have some reflex uh, it's also following CLS I uh, standard so like uh, there are a few different antibiotics and bacteria it's a whole list you know that when it's like a let's say like a resistant to imipenem and sensitive to ertapenem and, and things like that like uh, or um, other like the cephalosporins like first second and third generation and so there are a lot of rules like that uh, that kind of uh, suggest. So we, we do offer some tests also, like we have like a rapid test, agglutination test for uh, that it's called the Carba Carba R or Carba N. I think so. I think it's the Carba R. I don't know. There are a few, and they really just vary. But I can uh, check. And uh, we also validated in house uh, some. Uh, we have like a we have like a ESBL like that is for CTXM and TAM and SHV, and we also have one that it's for uh, carbapenemases that it's also a five plex PCR that we do like. Uh, I always forget one of them, but it's. Uh, KPC, IM, GAS, NDM1. You see, I forgot one. <laughs> there is always one. SPM. No, no, SPM is not. Uh, I have to check. And but, uh, they but just we be like have... run like automatically based off like the susceptibilities reflex. that start to come out. Oh, it's, yeah. it's all reflex. And uh, the the since we brought the agglutination test, we haven't been uh, doing the PCR much. Mm -hmm because usually you have the result there, and most of them are KPCs. Very, I think another time, we, uh, a few months ago, we did identify an NDM, but most of them will be the, the KPCs. So, but when we need, we have the PCR in-house also to do it. Thank you. Of course. Any other questions, comments from the 
in-person participants or the virtual participants? Okay. Thank you.